Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm 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 tired. Uh, as as uh, you can hear, I'm sure I'm still traveling. So uh, on the travel mic, as someone gri- griped about last week, but yeah, it's tra- it's travel mic or nothing. Oh, and yeah. uh, this person kind of implied that they wanted nothing the way they were complaining. They didn't really mean that, but they really were having a whinge. <laughs> See, a wh- so what is it? W h i n g e. Yes. I yes. always thought that was just an alternate spelling of wine, but you actually pronounce it whinge. Yeah, a whinge. Is so, that is that not it, a word in America? And that's different than wine, like W-H-I-N-E. Yeah, like we say whinging and whining. Huh. Well, this has been the end of uh, vocabulary for exponent listeners. Yes, it's. I keep running. It's funny. In, in, I've been over here since 2008, and I still bump into words like that that I just assume are exactly the same. In, on, uh, in Commonwealth English and in American English. And I still, I mean, I learned very early on that you don't want to call uh, flip-flops thongs. Like that was one that I learned very early on. But <laughs> I like but your thongs. <laughs> uh, this episode is sponsored by Wealthfront. Wealthfront is an automated investment service built for the modern era, and it's making it easier than ever to invest your money well. How do they do it? Well, they use software instead of retail locations, salespeople, and so on, so they can offer sophisticated investment advice at low costs that were previously impossible. It's exploded in popularity in the last two years, and they now have more than $2.5 billion under management. Check them out at wealthfront.com slash exponent to get up to $15,000 managed for free. Very good. And our thanks to Wealthfront for, for sponsoring Exponent once again. Uh, so... Um yeah, so well, you, you know, James, one could argue that uh, we are we're not giving adequate attention to the experience of listening to Exponent. Oh, uh, that's that's not a bad segue, Ben. That's not a bad segue at all. <laughs> but for the record, it is not true. We 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 do, we do spend a lot of time and money on it. Um, but yes, I am traveling. I'm on a travel mic. I should probably get a better travel mic. Um, but now we're gonna get forty seven emails recommending them. I will look into it. I, I will. Um. But yeah, uh, actually, so is is interesting because because we're traveling uh, and uh, we're traveling. I'm traveling, and uh, decided that you know this week, not only do you need to carry the podcast, but you you get to carry the the input into the podcast as well. And I'm I'm actually uh, excited about this because you wrote something this summer which was I thought really really good. Uh, I mean, it's corporate propaganda to be sh- to be sure. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> But no, it was really good. So, um, so uh, we'll link to this article in the show notes. But you wrote it this summer when when Next One was on a break about uh, managing what matters. Right. Well, thank you, thank you for the corporate propaganda. You really. <laughs> I said, I said it was very good. I said, despite you all, know, yeah, no, 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 it's all good. I, I deserve the ribbing. Um, so I think I've mentioned it a couple of times on the show. I've I've been working at a company Medallia that's focused on customer experience, and I can't when when you when you go through certain experiences in life, intellectual experiences, there's inevitably this notion of threading them together. And previously, I was working with Clay Christensen, focused a lot on disruption. And while I was working with him, one of the questions one of the questions that we always grapple with about disruption is that despite the fact that everybody, not everybody, but a lot of executives are aware about it, it's so insidious because despite the awareness of it, they keep 
falling into the trap of letting it happen time and time again. And one of the questions I started to ask was, I wonder if there's something in the very essence of the way they're looking at the world that's causing them to be blindsided by it. And as I thought more about this, it's like, what happens if the systems, the very systems that are designed to give executives a readout on how the business is performing it is part of what is causing uh, this problem to consistently take place? Now, uh, like a brief history lesson, ERP systems, enterprise resource planning systems, emerged in the 1980s and uh by many accounts, they're a revelation compared to the paper-based bookkeeping systems. Uh, it was fantastic. You suddenly were able to get an up-to-minute uh, view of how an organization was performing financially. You could track inventory. You could see how things were going. But uh, the, the well, I, I pull in Peter Drucker at various times throughout the article, and there's one Peter Drucker concept that I absolutely, uh, there are a couple that I love. One of them is this notion of what gets measured gets managed. Now, inside all of these organizations, the systems, this revelatory ERP system with its focus on financials, it, it was what was getting uh, measured and it was what was getting managed. Now, I, I guess... Well, so like, like, what, what's an example? Uh, how do you mean? Well, like, what, what what would be something that would be measured by an ERP system and thus effectively managed? Well, I mean, the the the, the it, it started off with a, a very heavy accounting focus. Uh, mm. They they were uh, you, you're able to push a button and effectively get an up to minute uh, an up to minute readout of of how a company was performing financially. So whether it was cash flow or profitability, like previously, it would take. Right. It was, it was kind of only after the fact that you would you would know how things were going, so you you couldn't respond immediately. It was kind of a, a, a big trailing trailing time. Right, and and now you had these live indicators. You're able to apportion it. Um, you could start to do some pretty sophisticated financial analysis as a result, and people started seeing financial ratios as like like started to use financial ratios as a measure of how things were doing. The whole era of, of management accounting came to the fore. You looked at uh, efficiency ratios and so on. And, and, and it, it, it was fantastic in one sense. All of a sudden, you had up-to-the-minute data that you didn't used to have. But I, I guess there was a flip side to that is because the data was so good and you could do all these things with it, it caused uh, a degree of myopia. It, everybody increasingly became focused on that. And going back to Drucker, as much as I love what what gets uh, measured gets managed, there's another concept that's, that, that Drucker had that I think is fundamental to all of business, which is the purpose of business is to create a customer. Now, the thing is, these financials are valuable in terms of managing a company. They are correlated with customers, but they are not the same thing as customers. And this view of the world... Uh, I think has caused companies to potentially more and more frequently be exposed to the forces that cause disruption because you're not focusing on the thing that matters the most, which is the customer. You're focused on something that's correlated with the customer, which is the dollars, as opposed to the customer itself. So basically, by paying super close attention to the financials and having a very clear picture on it, you do things that 
move the financials, you can see the impact right away. Uh, and then, and you lose sight of exactly what's happening when you do those things. You might be actually making the experience worse for the customer or something along, along those lines. And, and you won't even know it because you're not watching the customer. You're watching, you're watching the number. Right. And, uh, and the thing, I mean, like you, I've, I've watched and studied Apple for a very long time. And part of the, part of the hint for me of, of this idea, um, emerged from, uh, from watching the company and, and some of the leaders talk about their approach to management. But one of the quotes, um, from Steve Jobs that I absolutely love was, you know, when Apple failed, everyone was started to fail and Scully took over you know, like people would ask Jobs after he came back what he did to turn the company around. You know, it was successful while Jobs was there. Then he left and it started to fail and he came back and he turned it around. And and Jobs explained the the difference in thinking uh, between his management approach and Scully's management approach with this quote that I absolutely love, which is... Um, my passion has been to build an enduring company where people were motivated to make great products. The products, not the profits, were the motivation. Scully flipped these priorities to where the goal was to make money. It's a subtle difference, but it ends up meaning everything. Um, now, I, I think I would say, and I know you would definitely say, like it's not just one of these things where everyone should copy Apple like it's uh, that's okay for Apple. But there is definitely something in there, in this notion of priorities, where uh, where ERP systems spit out um, spit out data that's financially focused, and that becomes the priority. Whereas when when a manager or a leader inside an organization puts the customer first, uh, it ends up it ends up resulting in fantastic financials, but without a focus on the financials itself. It's like this notion of um, the dependent versus the independent variable, and um, it, it's it's been articulated recently by Tim Cook on a on a not the most recent earnings call, but one maybe I think it was three months ago, and he, he talked about it in his language, which was we're not focused on the numbers, we're focused on the things that produce the numbers, which I thought was also a really really interesting articulation of the distinction between these two things. So it's interesting because I think uh, it's it's one of those situations where where if you sit here today and you can talk about oh, uh, oh this is how Apple does it and you know and you are, you already made, you stole my line that's fine for Apple, um, but I, I think there's it, it's a little it, and you you did say this in passing but I, I I think to understand the impact of this ability to measure stuff um, it wasn't it wasn't all bad. And and the way what I would liken it to is um, so imagine you're you're trying to climb a mountain and mm. at the top of the mountain is a like perfectly successful company that is highly differentiated and consumers love and has a has a big moat and whatever it might be mm. and the reality is most companies didn't make it very far up the mountain at all um, yes if you could make it up the mountain that'd be great but it, you know it's it, 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 it's a hard mountain to climb the way I always think about these kind of data-driven uh, approaches and, and just data, data-driven approaches in general is they're kind of like, they're like a hill. Um, mm. They're not as high as the mountain, uh, but they're a lot higher than the ground. 
Mm. And if you use data and use it to drive your business and drive your decision making, you will make better decisions because you're not making decisions by your gut or through through uh, just because it feels like the right thing to do or because that's what you know Bob argued for and Bob's very compelling. <laughs> um, and so you get to this you get to this point where. You, you get kind of you, you do get a better business you get a better running business and if you look at the numbers as far as like efficiency goes and use of you know invested capital and all the ratios you were just talking about uh, you know businesses have gotten better they have gotten more much more efficient you know relative to their size than, than they were previously and that's that's a good thing because that means you know if you improve improve efficiency you improve productivity that's how you grow GDP like there is no other way to grow the pie. Right. Otherwise, you're just shuffling money around. Mm. And so I think, you know, it's easy to sit and point to the problems here. But actually, I would argue these sort of data track systems made a lot of businesses better than they would have otherwise been. Now, the danger, of course, and, and, and I think what you're driving at is that, well, there's a few things. If you're data driven for one, uh, data is is not. The data is typically available to anyone if they they work hard enough to get it, mm. and which which I think um uh, who's the who's the professor again that you you talked about uh Rita is it Rita, um Rita McGraw yes uh like the core concept of her book is that she's also written you know the end of the end of differentiation or mm. um I that's I don't think that's the exact title but basically her argument is that differentiation and sustainable businesses based on differentiation are kind of going the way of the dodo, and. I think that is actually tied to this data point. And what and if everyone is making decisions off of the same data set, like of course where are you getting a differentiation? Like the only differentiation that really you can you can derive from that is usually like a cost-based strategy where you just get more scale and produce at lower cost and can win on price. And you see this actually as well in industry after industry where there's there's a race to the bottom in pricing because that's seen as the only real way to to gain an advantage. And of course, that's not a a great way to build a business either because if your if your advantage is predicated on the lowest possible prices, well, you're at the mercy of someone lower cost coming in. And mm-hmm. on the flip side, I think to your point, if your number one focus is cost because you see that as that being the only way to build a sustainable differentiation, sustainable advantage. Well, guess what? That means that quality and product is, by definition, not the top priority. Right. I I, I think that's exactly right. Now, I, I guess, I guess the 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 next point is: is it possible to then get a set of data that does start to capture some of these things that you're talking about, like product quality, experience quality, and I think. If you look at some of the um, the 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 two leading lights, for example, of uh, of of the disruptive category in the tech space right now, Uber and Airbnb, I think one of the things that's fascinating is that yeah, it's it's not like these guys don't collect financial data, but they have a way now of capturing data on the quality of your experience. Now, you think about Uber, for example. Fundamentally, it is it is the same as a taxi on many levels. It is a driver, a car, and a passenger wanting to go somewhere. One of the biggest differences between Uber and a taxi is that Uber 
doesn't just collect the financial data, which is what the taxis collect as well. They collect data on the experiences as well. So the experience that every rider has inside an Uber uh, is collected. It's it's solicited from the customers. You can't order another Uber until you've you've rated the previous driver. Now, think about the effect that has on the driver because Uber says to drivers, you guys, like if you don't keep above four and a half stars, you can't keep driving on our network. If you're a passenger and you get in the you get in the car with an Uber driver, like if that if that's a taxi driver, maybe they're thinking about the experience out of the goodness of their heart. But with an Uber driver, it's like, okay, I'm not just thinking about how much money I can make on off off you, how big this fare is going to be. I'm thinking about making sure that you're going to get a fantastic experience because if you don't get a fantastic experience. Like the, the 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 experience is tied to my the experience I deliver is tied to my future earnings potential. So I need to make sure that I deliver a fantastic experience to you because somewhere someone somewhere is measuring this and then they're managing me to it. And that's why when you get in the back of the back of an Uber nowadays, like chances are there's going to be a bottle of water, maybe there's going to be a chewing there's going to be chewing gum. They'll get out of the car to open the door for you. They'll help you with your luggage that they like bend over backwards to make sure you have a fantastic experience. And that's the power of this approach. It's, it's again, it's not that Uber exists in this, uh, this utopian world where all of a sudden money doesn't matter anymore. Of course, that's not the case. It's that they've added another set of data into the management mix, which is this data on the quality of the experiences that their customers are having. Well, a couple things. So one, first off, the, the whole rise of ERP systems and, and, the ability to track financial data and performance data and things like that to to the minute, it was obviously very much tied to the rise of computing mm. because you know computers could actually do that sort of stuff and computers turns out computers are much better at accounting than humans are, uh, which <laughs> which makes total sense, um, and uh, you know, I think what Uber is is doing as far as this tracking of ratings and Airbnb with does doing a similar sort of thing. And I, I've, I've described this as being kind of the commoditization of trust in mm. a way uh, that's due to the rise of the internet and the reason, and because what's the key thing in the internet? One is the distribution cost. The other one is that it, it, it makes transaction costs zero. And previously uh, there, you know, if you're operating on the scale of Uber with millions of riders and hundreds of thousands of drivers, uh, there's no there's no real way to get that data constantly, right? I mean, we've all been on a phone call where they're like begging you to do a serve, you know, where they're begging you to do a survey at the end of the call so they can get feedback. No one wants to do that. Uh, but, you know, as you noted, yes, they, they introduce some friction in that you can't get a ride without putting in a rating, but it's, it's a, it's a about as painless as friction can be, right? Mm-hmm. You, 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 with the stars, you get it in, and, and then it, and it sent up through your phone cellular connection mm-hmm. to, you know, in a server somewhere, and that gets at, you know, part of what make part of what makes this possible. I, I think though, even then, I think you can even make the point even more strongly that the end result isn't and the differentiation doesn't necessarily isn't from the data per se and i think this is i think this is the point you're making uh the differentiation for uber uh comes from the quality of the experience and the fact that this attracts customers who are then loyal to the app who will use it in in multiple cities can help uber bootstrap new cities in a way you know and get get a driver advantage and then get a virtuous cycle going and uh 
even even here still i would just note that the data is in the service of uh differentiation not differentiation in of itself Absolutely. Uh, I, absolutely. I, I think that's exactly right. I think this notion that experience, I, I would generally agree with Rita McGrath's point that your ability or a company's ability to differentiate is starting to decline. I think I would point, I, w- I, would, I would push back on one level, which is experience is, remains one of the ways in which a company is able to differentiate. And I think what is enabling Uber to do this is the fact that they have the data. To come back to the Drucker point, it, w- what gets measured gets managed. Um, it's not the data that enables the. It's not the data that creates the differentiation, but it's it's being able to collect the data and then manage the data that enables the differentiation. Uh, the, the, it, it enables them to uh, manage the drivers to create a differentiated experience, which creates the differentiation. The data is a critical part, but it's the experience that's the differentiating factor. Absolutely. So, what? Yeah, I, and I think w- w- I mentioned before. I made the analogy of a mountain and a hill, mm. where the the mountain is, you know, the, a perfectly, you know, uh, an idea. I mean, Apple is probably the, the 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 canonical example of a company that's on top of the mountain. Mm. Uh, I wrote a thing of the day this week, and we can talk about in a bit about why the iPhone, in my estimation, is the strongest position it's ever been. And it's because they've you know nailed nailed this point. But and whereas building a, a business on data is to kind of climb a hill. And yes, you're better off than being on the valley floor, but you're also not as high as the mountain. And what's interesting is um, I think what you're what you're getting at, and I'm not sure. I agree somewhat. We can get into my my qualms in a moment, mm. but is that you know, for a company to be truly sustainable and long lasting and successful and profitable and all those sorts of good things that you want companies to be, they need to somehow figure out a way to get from the hilltop to the mountain. And I think why why companies struggle with this is if you kind of graph this on on, on a on a whiteboard, mm. like you have the hill. And then it goes down into the valley, and then goes up into the mountain. And what I liken this to, and I've used this analogy before, framework for for other things, but this is actually where I first came up with the framework was thinking about this question exactly. It's like an uncanny valley. So, an un, uh, are you familiar with an uncanny valley? Uh, I am not actually. So, an uncanny valley is actually a, a film, a, a movie term, usually in reference to animation, but also to 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 effects generally and Mm. it's primarily about people and the idea is when you animate a person in particular uh if the person is the more lifelike you get if it the more revulsion people will have to something if it's just if it's a little bit off actually i think it actually started in japan about robots or something like that i can't quite remember but the idea is and so when early pixar films in particular and pixar is getting more accurate over time but you can still see this whenever they render humans there's something that's 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 really off about them whether their eyes are super big or their ears are really weird or something and the reason is because they don't want the humans that they're rendering to be too lifelike because if they're almost lifelike but just a fraction off people will subconsciously have a revulsion to Mm. to to that person and so uh, i think a a a very commonly cited example this is the polar express this was an animated film about going to the north pole or whatever and a lot of people uh 
you know, felt that sort of revulsion of the characters because they were so lifelike, but there was just something off about them. Mm. And you couldn't really put your finger on it. You just felt felt this sort of revulsion. And um, anyhow, I'm not here to talk about movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not, not, not a movie reviewer. But I, I love the idea, this idea that in some respects, if you're not capable or you're concerned about going all the way and getting like a perf- something perfect, it's actually better to be good but not perfect than to go for perfect and to fail mm, that's a that's a fascinating idea and Do so you- and so well i think you this is what i think this is a big handicap for companies is yes ideally you want to build you want to build a company that sits on the top of a mountain but on the same at the same time you know you can use data and data who can argue with data that's what the data says right i mean mm. you know you get fired for using data um, you know what, what's what's the what's the phrase everyone talks about? Uh, something God created the world seven days. Everyone else bring data, or I don't know something along <laughs> those lines. Um, and uh, and so it's it's so much safer to stay on data, even if it means you're not going to make it to the mountaintop. Because to go for the mountaintop is to to some extent to abandon the data, not to go against the data, but to pursue something that that isn't found in the data. And, and if you think about it, when it comes to design, when it comes to new experiences, you have to abandon the data because data is by definition backwards looking. And so to create something new and to create something truly innovative and something that is truly going to provide differentiation and emote and all those great things, to some extent, you actually have to abandon the data, but most companies don't. And I think they don't, not just because they can't measure appropriately, because I would argue there are things here that really can't be measured. They do it because the incentive of any human is ultimately self-preservation. And you're asking a team, a company, an individual, a CEO, whatever it might be, to take the chance of utterly failing uh, and making things worse than they would have been had they stayed where they were, even if the goal was to create something truly special. I, I get exactly what you're saying now, um, and I, I I agree. I, I There is no data out there. Uh, well... Basically, what you're saying is you can't model your way to a new business model or a completely breakthrough innovation. Like, there's no one that was that that could have sat inside one of the hotel companies and come up with the idea of Airbnb. It's it's just there are so many leaps of uh, leaps of logic. Uh, too many different variables. Like there's no question you could have asked or data that you could have looked at to come up with that idea. And, and I agree with that. I guess, uh, I guess what this, what I was focused on here was uh, data on experiences to optimize within the realms of what's already in existence. So if, again, there's no way that, um, uh, Travis Kalanick, I've probably mispronounced his name, could have gone out and, and collected data to come up with the idea for Uber. He had his experience, he had a belief in it, and he went for it. Where the data on the experience becomes very useful is like once you have the service to optimize and to get the service close to the uh, asymptotic point at which it's the best it can possibly be. And that's where this experience data is incredibly valuable. It it helps it helps companies get the service to the best that can possibly be. And I don't think the financial data necessarily helps them do that. 
Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, I, I think you know something that that I think uh, it's interesting. There's, there's probably uh, we're probably talking about two. There's probably two things going on here. Mm. One is like truly new, innovative, mm. you know, never seen before sort of products or uh, 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 businesses or, or services mm-hmm. where they might be, and that is, and, and we can get that in a moment. And probably the other one is more refining what you do, right. making sure what you that whatever innovative thing you came up with in the first place continues to be attractive, continues to serve customers, and I think that's probably where what you're driving at it, it fits in more. It's more about how. It, once you have the good idea, once you have the big business, how do you make sure that business stays great uh, and doesn't kind of drift off, off track? Yeah, and and I guess I guess maybe one step further is that if your focus is on, uh, I I don't think it completely gets you there, but if your focus is more on uh, on that. Uh, on the customer, on what the customer is thinking and what the customer is experiencing, as opposed to the financials. I think, again, thinking back to that jobs quote about how Scully switched the priorities, like when you're focused on the customer, when you're focused on the product, I do think that there's an argument to be made that it makes organizations more open to more open to things that are outside the aperture because the financials speak very clearly to like, we need to keep doing what we're doing. We need to wring more and more out of it. But when you start to, when you start to, to focus more on the, on the, the customer, on the experience, then I feel like your aperture opens a little bit more. Now I, that's probably me on the opinion side of things. And I agree with the statement that you just made. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it is interesting. I mean, I think that, um, there, there's, there, there's an aspect of, particularly when it comes to creating new products, where, mm. you know, th- there's different types of data too. There's, there's data that can, again, going back to computers first really took over accounting systems. Mm. Computers are really good at numbers, and data is best captured by numbers, and. And you know we have word for that as quantitative quantitative data, but there's there's more qualitative type sorts of data, and it's interesting because there's there are attempts to to uh, ascribe a number to this, right? You can mm-hmm. rate your experience, you can do all sorts of things, you can, um, and then you can measure it and average it. But I think there's there's also a a more deeper level of qualitative understanding that is really about getting into you know understanding people where they are you know being very empathetic to their their position and and yeah i guess it's it's even taking what you're saying to an even more extreme level where how does that person actually experience life where are their circumstances how does it how does the current current status quo make them feel how would something different make them feel differently and then driving that through and i think this is a reason why so many uh companies are start out because it's a personal passion of the founder and this is you know and again travis you know you just made the point travis Kalanick and uber is a great example he couldn't get a freaking taxi in san francisco so he you know he, he built uber and the pain that was being felt and the reason why this service ought to exist was very was very real to him and to you know his 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 partners and i think and it's funny cuz that's what spurred the 
product in the first place. And then what I think you're arguing is how do you maintain that product mm. as it scales? And and now, yes, you're getting away from the sort of very individualistic, qualitative, empathetic approach. But that doesn't mean you have to jump straight to financial data, right? There, there's sort of this middle area where you can still focus on the experience, but do it in a scalable way. And again, I don't know that's going to create new products, but it probably does a much better job maintaining great products as opposed to tracking the finances. I think that's a I, I think that's a really good way of of articulating it. That there's this notion of a spectrum, um, and that this is about making sure you don't go from one extreme all the way to the other. That there's somewhere in between that keeps you closer to that starting point of why you originally why you originally set out on the journey and and keeping close to that, keeping close to the customer experience and their feedback to ensure that you don't stray too far from that. Because I feel the big risk is that when you when you drop all the way to the other end of the spectrum, when you just focus on the customer's dollars rather than the customer, that you can lose sight of what that was. Yeah, and I, I would say I would I would I would make two further points on, on on top of what on top of what you just said, and the first is that, um, for one, I actually, I, I, despite the fact that most companies are started by someone kind of meeting their own need, and I think that's natural because most people, um, we're all most people we're all self centered people that are very well mm-hmm. aware of our own problems and feelings, and not as aware of others as we can be, uh, or should be. That said, I actually do think that it is possible to build products and to build companies around this sort of empathetic approach. It just requires a very uh, deep-rooted approach to to marketing and what I mean by is inbound marketing. Uh, the designers was talking about design. Uh, there's actually a whole kind of field about this called human-centered design. The idea being that you understand the customer not from a quantitative standpoint, but from a qualitative standpoint. You observe them. You go to their house. You watch how they do things. Uh, one of the most ex- famous products that that's a product of this approach is the uh, – is a product by Procter and Gamble, and mm. what happened was they have they they employ a whole host of ethnographic researchers, um, and and they were looking for a new product, and uh, they went into houses and were observing, you know, housewives in particular, and they they realized that um, consistently it was really important to housewives to have a clean kitchen floor, and they they were. They felt shame when they didn't, and they felt pride when they didn't. It, it, it was weird. There was this one part of the house that just really drove it. And part of the thing they realized was the problem was cleaning the kitchen floor was a, this huge endeavor, right? You had to get a bucket of water, and you get a mop, and you had to do it, and the water got dirty, and it was a mess, and it didn't work very well. And they had to pour it out, and you had to rinse it, and you had to do it over again. And it was like a multi-hour affair that was not just time but also drudgerous. And so they, they encountered – a through this sort of research, this this feeling of kind of not regret, but almost uh, uh, resignation and and frustration that this one thing that was really important to them, despite the fact it was important to them, wasn't being done. It wasn't being done because mm-hmm. it was a pain in the neck. And the product that resulted from this was the Swiffer Mop. The idea that you can have this sort of disposable product that you can easily in 10, 15 minutes, clean your kitchen floor. You don't have to get in your hands and knees. You don't have to go through the rinse and wash cycle and dealing with water splashing around and all that sort of stuff. And 
and you could pay a relatively speaking substantial amount of money. You go in the store and you buy refills all the time. It's a you know, it's a brilliant product because you have to buy refills. It's like a subscription product. Uh, but the 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 sense of relief and and pride really that that product engendered made it one of P&G's all-time greatest successes from a new product launch and uh and you know companies like P&G most they mostly do brand extensions and kind of combinations and stuff that was like that was a pure new product that moved the needle for the like the bottom line needle like the stock price needle in a major way and it came from this sort of understanding of of what what people were looking for and it didn't come from the data they, there was no data saying that people wanted a, a disposable mop that they would pay uh an incremental amount of money on right there wasn't a regular mop a kitchen mop is cheap it's free we buy it once you use it forever people would actually spend a significant amount more per month uh for this feeling and, and a very profitable business resulted well i i i could sit and listen to these um ethnographic research stories from P&G all day long because they fascinate me. I, I will say this, the data did exist. They just had to, it wasn't sitting in a spreadsheet somewhere. And those researchers went out and collected the data. And uh, it's 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 qualitative in nature. And it's very different from the kind of data, yeah, that sits in a financial spreadsheet. But the data was there. They had to work really hard to get it. They did w- work really hard to get it. And it's been a uh, that that product has been a resounding success. Well, I mean, that, you, that, that, that's kind of like making the definition of data so broad as to be almost meaningless, though. Don't yeah, you think? yeah. Po- point taken. Point taken. Um, well, the, uh, the, the, well, the other thing, the other thing that I would say that I would say about this though is, it's not just that. I think the, the what makes this kind of scary though and dangerous is to make significant decisions uh based on non-traditional data shall we say uh or like that veers dangerously close to the kind of gut feeling sort of decisions right and like how do you like how do you determine like what is actually a valid insight and what isn't and i think particularly the larger the company the 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 more loose the ties right the lower the trust the more difficult it is to make these sorts of calls because again you're 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 looking to invest significant money or make a big change or 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 launch a new product and based on based on what based on oh we went we you know oh well that's fine you observed one person but are we sure that's going to scale and we should probably do some surveys about that and and, and you end up surveying yourself to a totally mediocre yeah. solution that's trivially copied I, and I, I think this is where some of the thinking from Eric Reese and the lean methodology about, okay, if you're in this circumstance, like find a way of quickly and cheaply building and iterating on a minimal viable product to actually test the market. And in the instance of something like Swiffer, I think this might actually work. The problem with that approach is when it comes to products uh, digital products in particular that require massive network effects to be effective. Um, 
it's it's impossible to MVP an advertising network or a, a, a something that relies on advertising to back it because it's got to get to scale. So it, well, it makes well, it substantially harder. Well, it's interesting though because um, what you know, what's the big what's what was traditionally the big criticism of Uber? I think you don't hear as much anymore, but it was that people presumed it was a trivially easy market to enter. There was no network effect. There was no defense. Uh, you had to start anew in every city. Mm. And so, you know, and this was back, you know, I remember back when Uber was first raised at a value of like 18 billion or something. Um, I was, I was the first raise, but I think that was the time people really kind of crapped their pants about it. And, and, um, and what, and it turns out, and this is, this is a point I haven't written about, uh, as extensively to date, but I have noted about my whole aggregation theory sort of thing is that the, the entire reason why these companies are so powerful is not because they have traditional network effects, which depend on uh, uh, control, is, is more about distribution in many respects. Um, but it's that they simply, they've aggregated all the users and the, and they've aggregated all the users not through like locking them in per se, but more about through the, co- the consumers are actively choosing to be a part of that mm. service. People use Google because Google has the best search. Right, people mm-hmm. use Facebook because Facebook has all their friends and fam- Facebook has uh, such a traditional clear network effect. So maybe not the best example, but mm-hmm. people go to Amazon because Amazon has, has all the products, right? And so you turn around, and what's really interesting? There's there's so many implications of this. So first off, the first implication, just to finish my point, is that user experience ends up becoming its own sort of. It's not a network effect, but it's the same sort of idea mm. where people attach themselves to a company to a product willingly, and that's why that that's ultimately what makes makes Uber more 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 defensible. It's yes, the drivers are the critical factor, but the drivers go where all the riders are, and the riders are are, are attached to Uber. And so Uber launches in a brand new city, boom. They immediately have have an audience of uh, particularly travelers, but also people who've who've traveled themselves and used and used in other cities, and and they're already attached to it. And, and you know this gets into the no distribution cost, no transaction cost that, that they can scale basically perfectly to to a new place. And then they get the drivers, and then the, there's more drivers, there's more liquidity, and you get more users and all sorts of stuff. I've written about this previously, um, so that, that that's that's point one. But point two is this actually gets gets into why so much how business has fundamentally changed and around things like antitrust law, for example. So mm-hmm. you take, you take like, take Google, for example, uh, it's, you know, Google getting deeper and deeper uh, hot water in, in Europe, yet they were acquitted in, in the U S and actually both of those are exactly what you would expect to happen. And the reason you expect them both to happen is because the U S has based its antitrust jurisdiction according to the benefit to the consumer whereas europe has based it according to the effect on competition and so what that means if 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 these new companies are increasingly uh gaining their advantage and their power from a superior user experience that customers are willingly choosing then according to the u.s way of looking at antitrust of course there's no problem the consumers are benefiting. And you think about it, like Google was in trouble for like scraping Yelp reviews, for example, right? Tell you what, I'm pretty happy when I search on Google and it gives me the answer right there. I don't want to have to click into a link. You know, I, I, I absolutely agree it's a better experience. And yes, you can argue there's knock-on effects and if Google makes these companies not make money, there won't be all this stuff there. Yeah, I, I get that. And that's more akin to the European approach, which is uh, 
Google's actions are hurting competitive companies. It doesn't matter if it's quote unquote better for the consumer because in the long run competition is is more important. And again, it just it's very different approaches that traditionally didn't really differ in practice, even if they differed in theory, because most antitrust was built on traditional sort of monopoly arrangements that often had a lot to do with distribution. But in this new era where where uh, advantage springs from uh, kind of monopolizing consumer preference, mm-hmm. which isn't something you can really legislate about. People are choosing it; it's, their, it's free. It's free will. Uh, you're seeing the, the a, a big dif- you know bifurcation between these two. I think you're going to continue to see that. Yeah, I I, I, I think this second point is uh, really interesting, um, and it's it's interesting how the different approaches. Uh, between EU and US um, views on uh, anti uh, antitrust have been historically, although they come from a different place, they've had the same effect. How in this present era, uh, it's it's this the difference is actually uh, the difference between them is now drawing to light this tension between uh, what happened in the past and what happened what happens now. But I, I think the first point that you made around how critical it is to deliver on great experiences for consumers to aggregate as many consumers to aggregate aggregating the consumers sounds like not it's not the way i describe it to to have consumers want to actively use your service how important that is in today's competitive dynamic that's it it's that's the importance of putting in place something more than just an ERP system to manage the dollars. You you can't just manage the dollars. You have to focus it more tightly on the consumers and their preferences and keep them keep them happy, keep them delighted, keep them keep them wanting to come back to you. And the continued uh, the the almost uh, virtuous benefits you get from that you get you Uber. All the examples you described, like they get more data, Google gets more search data, gets more advertisers, it gets in this virtuous circle, like just focusing on that experience, how critical that's become. Yeah. And the other thing that the other thing that that's interesting about this, and this is why I, I keep kind of banging my drum about, about this, this aggregation theory is it, is, is it flips everything on its head because it used to be if in a say in a stack whatever whatever your your area of competition might be whether it be hotels whether it be cars whether it be mm. um you know service you know data centers whether it be e-commerce uh there's different there's different layers in 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 the stack whatever it might be there there might be suppliers there might be distributors there might be wholesalers there might be uh manufacturers there's, and there's going to be customers and customers by definition are going to be the largest group right there's there's way more than there are manufacturers and there are distributors. Like that's just the way the whole thing works. It's like a pyramid where the customers are at the bottom. And because of that, and this is where the transaction cost comes in, because of that, the way to build a monopoly and the way to extract the maximum amount of rents from whatever industry you compete in would be to would be to try to monopolize or or more fully control something usually somewhere at the top of the pyramid, a smaller part. And if you could get a choke point in the production of a product or service or whatever, then you could, you know, charge high rents and you could make a lot of money. And, you, and that was a strong moat and all that sort of thing. But the the broader point is 
to actually gain control, you're better off focusing on on uh, a choke point, like a, where it narrows down. There isn't that many things to that many things to control. Mm. What's interesting about uh, the approaches of these these new wave of companies is they are like what what is Uber? Uber isn't trying to control any choke points. Like the the drivers are free. The, the drivers are free to drive with Lyft if they want, right? They, like the, their actually focus is on the base of the pyramid. On they're actually seeking to monopolize what, according to all traditional business thought, was the part that was impossible to monopolize. The way you made money off of tons of consumers was by controlling some part in the stack above them so they had no choice but to buy from you. Whereas this opposite approach is about attracting more consumers than everyone else and then by extension gaining leverage on everyone else in the stack and being able to dictate turns to them and tell them what you want them to do, all in the service of providing a superior user experience and and, and ultimately collecting rent for that reason. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, that's a really – that's a beautiful way of articulating the importance of like making sure this experience is really good and just by virtue of the internet and what it's enabled like previously that would have almost been impossible to fathom to uh, yeah yeah. like one company is going to one company is like is going to monopolize everyone who wants a ride in the world i mean the the very idea is is ridiculous right and until of course uh until of course it's not and that's what they're trying to do just uh, it's such a good experience that why would you want to go anywhere else and no. and you uh, you uh, it becomes it becomes much less of an air war where you focus on those one or two spots in the supply chain and it becomes a ground war where you have to try and where your aim is to try and win every single consumer Right, exactly. I mean, probably the most famous examples of this is is um, is Apple, and it's with the the iPhone and carriers, where the carriers used to have all the control, and they had the most control. Why? Because they controlled a critical part of the infrastructure when it came to to wireless service. They actually built the freaking towers and spent a ton of money to do so, and there was massive cop capital costs. If you ever wanted to compete with them, you had to build your own towers, and so of course you you didn't have that many providers, and they could charge exorbitant rates and provide crappy service and dictate what phones you could get and what all this sort of stuff. And no one really had a choice because the, yes, it took a ton of money, but they controlled the choke point, right? And what Apple did that was so remarkable with, with the iPhone is basically because Apple over the years had engendered such consumer loyalty that People cared more about the iPhone and getting an iPhone and being an Apple customer than they did anything else. And Apple wasn't forcing anyone to this. It wasn't like Apple said you have to use an iPhone to get wireless service. No, like, and this is why people had such a hard time understanding why the iPhone was was a, a behemoth. Like, oh, the iPhone it costs six hundred fifty dollars. So like, people can just go buy a two hundred dollar phone and do whatever. But that's to miss the point. It's to miss exactly what's going on here. Apple wasn't winning because they were winning on cost or because they were winning by controlling a choke point or because they had some sort of monopoly. They were winning because people were voluntarily choosing and not just choosing, but voting with their feet that they wanted an iPhone. And so they left Verizon to go to AT&T. They left NTT Docomo to go to SoftBank. They, they, and you, see, you saw this happen in country after country where Apple would 
Um, and the U.S. is obviously the, the most famous example, but this happened all the time where Apple would enter countries almost never with the leading carrier. They would enter countries with the third or fourth place carrier, and then people – the leading carriers would see customers abandon their service because they wanted an iPhone. And again, Apple was doing this without all the traditional tools of leverage that we associate with building moats and building sustainable companies. They were doing it by dominating the, the user experience. And – what, what what's funny about this is it turns out that if you can pull this off, if you can get to the mountaintop, the amount of leverage you end up having overwhelms what were previously thought to be like insurmountable points of leverage. Like basically, Apple has a trillion multi-trillion dollar business or however many is like dancing to their to their tune, that being the wireless carriers. The wireless carrier business is far larger uh, from a dollar perspective than the handset business. Yet, they all follow Apple's orders. And the reason they do it is because Apple has garnered such leverage by owning the consumer experience. And again, this is it's not just Apple. Like, why does Google why does Google basically control all of direct response advertising and and all publishers and all this sort of stuff. Why? Because they control the end user that is looking for information. And if you're looking for information, you're going to go to Google first, and which means Google gets all the leverage. And they're not getting leverage because they're forcing people into anything. They're getting leverage because the consumers are voluntarily choosing to go to Google. And again, this makes all our antitrust law like so 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 problematic because the consumers are making a choice. They're not being forced into anything. Amazon, same thing. Like they can, why can they, why, like you for one, we're getting all worked up about Amazon dictating terms mm. to publishers, but why were they able to do that? They were because, able to do that because yeah. people were choosing to go to Amazon to buy stuff because Amazon was the best experience for buying stuff. And uh, same thing with with Facebook and, and all these other companies, all these companies coming up from the bottom. And this is such a sea change. Like we, I don't remember a single freaking lecture in business school talking about the, the importance of the user experience in building a competitive advantage because it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit with the old world because it was never possible to monopolize consumers. Because even if you did focus on user experience, the presumption was, well, that's fine. You can own your nice little niche. Right, but the internet and the way that you can scale and the way you can manage Uber can manage millions of people at basically effectively zero cost makes this actually a viable strategy. And, and this is why, like, business has fundamentally changed. And quite frankly, most of the people who are going on about business and teaching it have no freaking idea. <laughs> Sorry, I, I got a little ranty there. You, 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 uh, you did get a little ranty. I, 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 uh, I won't lie. I, I did enjoy it though. I, that, that, it, it's it, in some senses it's fantastic, right? Because from from a consumer perspective, uh, I mean it, the the alignment between uh, a business's incentives. Uh, to win and what results for consumer is is certainly better than at uh, than traditionally what it's been in the past. Like if 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 you were to choose to live in an era where uh, uh, you can 
where you have businesses that are focused on delivering fantastic experiences versus an era where like uh, businesses were or, or markets were won as a result of uh, pulling off a choke point and uh, forcing consumers into uh, choosing to use them. I certainly much prefer this era. It is certainly going to get interesting when this plays out to its logical end and you do have a company like Uber that, d- that potentially dominates the entire transportation market worldwide and there's no competition. Then then I like, mm, it's been great up until this point. The, the point at which they do have a monopoly, they don't have any competition. Uh, that will be interesting to see what it's like. But right now, when we're in this point where there is some competition, where they're fighting and they're focused on delivering a great experience to continue that fight, it's fantastic to be a consumer in this world. Well, that's why I think regulation, if it ought to exist, should focus not on necessarily the 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 acquisition of a monopoly of an effective. It's not a real monopoly of an effective monopoly through having a superior user experience. The question is that that ought to be fine and and you ought to be able to benefit and to profit from that it's when and if companies leverage that into into something that is a choke point you know that that is more insurmountable so like uh and you could argue this is what is you know this is a thing with google like yes they provide a superior search experience but at what point are they leveraging leveraging that into something that is blatantly you know that that is more about being a choke point and, and controlling stuff, and I think that's that's the place to to focus on, not not on the uh, but but it's hard though. It's and the reason it's hard is because well, let's talk about Google. Google's an interesting example. Mm. Uh, the fact of the matter is is that the end result of Google dominating the market for people seeking information is that all the providers' information are commoditized, right? That, mm-hmm. that that's that, that like if you have integration in one part of the market, you're going to get modularization, commoditization in the other part of the market. It's you know the theory of um, uh, attractive profits or whatever. Um, another one of my actually favorite things that that Quakerson has written about, even though it gets less 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 publicity. Um, so. So, yes, so so it's but I don't think that's a bad thing. Like that's just the way that's just the way the world works. The the part that's a little more concerning again not necessarily bad but where it's more concerning is this idea that by having the most data uh google will always have a superior search engine for example right because there's there's an ask there's a flywheel sort of aspect where Mm. where the bigger get the, the rich get richer and that's where again i don't think there ought to be regulation around that specific example but that's where there's a little more concern and and like if anything the way to push back is to make it um easier to have more you know more portability right you can get locked into amazon cuz all your preferences are on amazon all, all your data what if you could act, what if you could trivially pull out your buying preferences from amazon and go somewhere else like that that would at least theoretically weaken their advantage their advantages somewhat again it's a fine line i'm not i'm not i personally am more on the optimistic side right now that i think that these companies are being built then their their profitability and power is being built through delivering a superior experience and if they tried to actually get away from that uh i think alternatives would come along sooner rather than later and and so until i'm proven wrong i'm going to be more likely to default 
towards a more laissez-faire position. Um, but if you if you did feel the need for regulation, I think it's looking at those points where you get the benefits of scale become overwhelming is one area where you're leveraging a user experience monopoly into an actual monopoly would be another. Mm, I, I I mean, like I, I you mentioned this in passing, but a hint of uh, a hint of how this could be abused was Amazon when they got into a dispute with. Uh, a book publisher and deprioritize the results. Um, they they have a fantastic user experience, uh, and uh, as a result of having so many uh, uh, having so many customers and the importance of that, they can then leverage that in other ways that might not uh, ostensibly affect the user experience, or maybe that they're willing to trade off some of that user experience a little bit in order for other business other business goals like i mean if if we get to the point where uber is is a, is a global monopoly so i i've been living in the south bay of san francisco and it's been fantastic being here because they're pushing prices down to encourage people to ride more with uh with uber as opposed to i'm assuming that competition um, but let's say eventually it is a winner-take-all market and there's no other competition for ride-sharing and more and more people are like me in that they don't own cars and they get around just using ride-sharing services, that the, the incentive for them to keep the price down starts to go away. Right, but, but you have to remember their entire, like there's nothing about their model that, guarantees that they get to keep it right if they raise prices why couldn't there be another ride sharing service that, that comes along the drivers are free to drive for whoever they want they're interested in, in optimizing mm. their own profits i mean again you might be right you might be right that it turns out it's impossible like they'll get to such scale it's impossible to a competitor but that but at least right now if like you can't have it both ways mm, if no. our contention is that they're they're winning because of the experience you can't turn around and say well th- then they're gonna b- ruin the experience and profit and then so on and so forth and this is kind of the whole the whole hole in the um you know in the 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 former sort of bull argument for Am- for Amazon right is like oh well Amazon is going to get market get market share and then they're going to stop and then raise prices and then profit it's like well no they'll raise prices and people will go somewhere else right mm. and was, and that was a bare argument against Amazon is that they'll never be able to raise prices and thus be able thus be able to profit um and again the reason why I'm such a massive Amazon bull now um one because I love yo-yoing no but in reality the reason is because <laughs> AWS is actually a different kind of business where the larger you get, the more profitable you become. And that's that's a fantastic – and I think that it's only on the, on the very beginning of its growth. Um, but again, I'm talking about no, 47 I, things. But the point being – you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say yeah, this yeah. is the way to no, get no, an no. advantage and it's going to go away. I mean like if I'm to think of a fairy tale – or a fable, a fable that's coming to mind where someone was able to accumulate a massive, uh, a massive population and and get the population to to follow them was the Pied Piper, and we all know how that ended up, and that's kind of what this is reminding me of. How did it end up again? Uh, he 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 took all the children, right? Did he got all the everyone loved his music and all the children followed him, and then he took all the children. I forgot that fairy tales are always so morbid. 
I'm I'm gonna look this up. No, I'm I think almost... that's right. I, but I think there's like Disneyfied versions where like there's a happy ending to it. But I think the actual version is actually really, really, yeah, no, really I, morbid. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that the uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, I'm. Oh yeah, he he got rid of uh, he got rid of the rats. So there was a rat infestation, and then the mayor reneged on his promise to pay him the full sum. Uh, the piper returned dressed in green like a hunter playing his pipe, attracting the town's children, and all the children followed him out of town where they were lured into a cave and never seen again. So there's my all the all the users are following these uh, all the users are following these companies into a cave never to be seen again. Or onto an HBO HBO show about a music startup. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is it is fascinating though that that experience has become this this way in which you can aggregate people and that 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 companies are winning this like that that the, the possibility of winning this literally experience by experience, customer by customer, making each interaction fantastic. I mean, uh, uh, it, it is it is super cool. Yeah, and, it, and you end up with companies. I mean, it's you would also make the same the same thing about Apple. I mean, the same you could raise the same concerns if you wanted to. The reality is, Apple's focus on the user experience has now basically leveraged itself into this kind of overwhelming advantage that Apple has from very core structural things. Like Apple has such scale that they it to produce expensive new phones is cheaper for them. Like it, it costs Apple less to create an iPhone than it would create another company to create a, a, an equivalent phone if they could even create it, if they could get the components because Apple's the the biggest buyer and they have the biggest and they have the biggest budget so they can spend more. And like Apple, they're actually now reaping all these traditional advantages from leveraging themselves up through the user experience advantage. Um, and you know, I don't know. Is it is it a bad is it is it a bad thing that there's only one premium filmmaker, and not that there's just one premium filmmaker, but that there really isn't a way for another premium filmmaker to arise? Like, like the 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 Apple's control of the market, and not just now people who prefer user experience, but if you want to have a high quality. If you want to have the highest quality hardware, if you want to have the newest features, if you want to have access to the the apps when they first launch or 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 are first updated, like you're you you have no choice but to go to an iPhone, and it's because all this initial advantage, uh, it, it's almost like Google having the most data, so searches gets better. It's like a virtuous cycle that cements these companies in, in a position. Um, which uh, we're we're talking concern. I mean, as a business person, it's fantastic. I mean, you, who wouldn't want to build such a business? And but it's and it goes against all. There's so much conventional wisdom in place about how to build a sustainable business mm. that it that is obsolete and it's antiquated because it it discounts this approach of focusing on the experience and it discounts this approach because it doesn't really understand the way that internet economics work. Again, Apple's not an internet. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I, I I think I think it's it's less of an uh, so I think it's less of an issue. So we're kind of approaching this from the societal question: Is it concerning? And I think it's less of an issue when it comes to something like uh, 
premium phones than it is for something uh, more fundamental like transportation services. Wait, wait, I thought, I thought you said the premium because Apple is going to not let us uh, not have drone strike apps and uh, yeah, and I mean, newspapers are going to go out of business and we're all doomed. Yeah, ha ha, ha ha. No, I, I mean, like... Yeah, like that. That is, I, I think that is concerning. I, I, I think, but I don't think I wasn't trying to mock you. I was trying to give you an opportunity to get up to get to get ranty yourself. I didn't want. Oh, I didn't want to be the you, only ranter on this you, podcast. You, you were trying to goad me then. Well, maybe. <laughs> I yeah. I I I and I I don't think Apple is unassailable on the phone front. I think the 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 dimensions on which you talked about. They started off with a unique combination of hardware and software and uh, yeah the software is fantastic and uh, a lot of those investments that they've made to give themselves an unassailable advantage on on a phone a premium phone have come on the hardware side i think that the 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 competition can still emerge to the iphone but it'll be from an orthogonal angle it'll be something cloud-based or something like that again it's when it crosses into um it's there's something about the way I don't know. I, I'm thinking about the the Uber thing. If if you get to a point where a transportation uh, organization ends up with like a monopoly, that that somehow feels a little scarier to me than someone who owns the premium end of the market and yeah, who doesn't like drone strike apps. So that does frustrate me when they play that kind of. It's so that, interesting that because because right. my, my my I would contend that one of the reasons why Apple advantage is so sustainable is because actually the smartphone is the most important object we we have and given that customers broadly are one more likely to pay a premium two more likely to value small improvements because they use it so often um and three will be the last thing they cut spending on and money on in any sort of economic downturn um Mm. Anyhow, uh, we could- no, no, no. I mean, it, they're all good points. It's it's funny. I, I, your 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 daily update talking about how you get frustrated with the Apple cynics around how much more can this grow. I I will confess that two or three years ago, I was cynical about whether they could they could continue to grow the iPhone market in the way that they had. I mean. I think it was around the five or maybe the four S. I'm just like, you know what, guys, just improve the battery and I'm fine. Like, and yet, and I can't even articulate necessarily why, but as maybe I'm about to get the accusation of the Apple fanboy. As soon as they dropped the six S, there I was. I was like, I'm upgrading. I don't even know why I'm bothering to upgrade. Like the six is fine, but I'm getting the six S. And the difference is, is, um, the difference is probably pretty marginal at this point, but you're right. It is like it is probably the device that I use the most in my life, and I it's it's like a window into the digital world, and the the small improvement seems to be worth it, even though I mean it's a little bit faster. I can't really articulate that many other benefits over the previous one, but as soon as it was there, I was there, and it's not like I'm like that with my Mac anymore. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you. you uh yeah, people don't don't upgrade those at all. I didn't, yeah, because it's so personal. Um, anyhow, we we've gone a little long. Uh, you you you. Uh, um, did I carry us? You did. You carried us far beyond <laughs> the finish line. There we go. Well, I I I I don't think I really was carrying us any more than uh, 
you claim to be carrying me on prior episodes. Yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> um, we need, if we ever do get theme music, it'll have to be some variation on like uh, on. There's got to be like, like some sort of canonical carry me song. <laughs> I thought you were about to say something from the Pied Piper. Yes, that would be even. Yes, that would be even better. Uh, <laughs> I, I was getting halfway into that, and I realized that it was going to be unfunny and not go anywhere. I didn't know what to do. I just finished saying it. Um, so I'm glad you swooped in with the Pied Piper reference. That made it. That made it slightly, no, slightly more. I mean, we we save each other on a regular. You know what? I'll tell you what. I'm not. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna tell you that. Uh, you're gonna have to put off my with, with with my mic because I'm traveling and my nice you know my, my nice mic doesn't travel. Um, and I'll push back against that. But if you want to give me grief about that bad joke, I totally justify. I should probably cut it. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, I will. I will give you grief offline about your bad joke. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah, we'll be here all night. Uh, but quickly, want to want to think again. A uh, wealthfront. Uh, this episode was sponsored by Wealthfront. Uh, Wealthfront is interesting because it automates habits and strategies that investors should be using on a regular basis, but normally aren't. Great investing is a marathon, not a sprint, and little things that you may not be familiar with, like automated tax loss harvesting, rebalancing, and smart dividend reinvesting, can add up to very large amounts of money over time. Wealthfront does all of these things to your money automatically. As an exponent listener, you'll get fifteen thousand dollars managed for free if you decide to open an account. But just start with seeing the portfolio that they would suggest for you take two minutes fill out their questionnaire at wealthfront.com slash exponent it's free and this is the best part you don't even need to give them your email address it is james it certainly sounds like a great experience it, I, I i've used that automated i tried the little thing the little tool it's actually really cool what they recommend they ask you a series of questions to like figure out exactly what it is that you're looking for where you are like how risk seeking versus risk of us and uh, it gives you a bunch of really cool recommendations. So yeah, I would I would recommend checking it out. Cool. And the first fifteen thousand uh, would be managed for free if you go to wealthfront.com/exponent. So our thanks to them. Very good. Cool. Sounds good. Well, uh, next week I will be back home with a proper mic. Uh, so uh, what about the bad jokes? Will they go home too? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I will. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I will. I will talk to you later. And uh, and I want to come up with one more bad joke, and I just can't, I just can't can't do it. I'm sorry. On that note, I'll see you later, mate. Oh, I talk to you later. Bye.